a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Just want to make clear, this is not a program to tell you what to think, to tell you who you should be angry at or what should make you outraged. Nope. It's just a place where you can find some thoughtful, informative commentary and interviews for people who delight in thinking for themselves. And hopefully that's you. Thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. If you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, I would be happy to drop a copy of them in your email inbox. All you have to do is mash the subscribe button, which you will find at thebrianhideshow.com. Got some great sponsors who make the program a possibility. They include lifesavingfood.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, hslammo.com, sewingandquiltingcenter.com, governyourincome.com, and monticellocollege.org. So, how are you doing? I, I have some fun stuff to share today, and I'm going to dive right into the most controversial one right off the top. Have you noticed... How upset some people get when Nazi policies are compared with some of the current uh, othering of uh, unvaccinated people, for instance, today. Actually, when you compare anything that is happening today, however totalitarian it may be, you know, the, the Australian authorities rounding people up and putting them in camps, you know, for their own safety. When you compare that to things that the Nazis did, some people get really, really upset. In fact, what's really crazy is the same people who get most upset are usually the ones who are saying whatever you and I are doing. Well, you guys are just nothing but Nazis. It's like, okay, you don't, you don't see the disconnect. But Barry Brownstein has a remarkable essay that's not so much about how to compare everything to what the Nazis did, but more about moving us from darkness into light. And that's always going to entail risk, which means when you point out, hey, we're on the same totalitarian path of whether it was the Nazis or whether it was the, you know, great leap, great leap forward rather under Mao or even, you know, Stalin or any of the other uh, communist leaders uh, purges of those who would not uh, get in line and go with the party. You know, it's you're going to face criticism. So with that in mind, it's always the right thing to do. It's just not always an easy thing to do. Barry Brownstein says, We are told that comparing current COVID policies concerning the unvaccinated to Nazi-era policies is outrageous. We're told we're dishonoring the memory of the dead. But he says no one should apologize for comparing Nazi policies with the stigmatization of the unvaccinated today. Reason being, comparisons reveal mindsets. And I love the example that he gives here. If an alcoholic... Peter says he has nothing to learn from Tom's experience since Tom drinks a quart of vodka a day and Peter only drinks a pint. We would disagree. Peter may well learn from Tom, even if the degree of Tom's alcoholism is different. Now, if Tom overcame his alcoholism, Tom might have a universal lesson to teach Peter. And Barry Brownstein says, because when we learn from a cautionary tale, it's not because there are exact parallels. We learn because we can conceptualize the principles the tale teaches. Boy, that is a takeaway right there. I mean, you could turn off the show and having not heard anything else and probably come away with something very useful. 
We learn because we can conceptualize the principles that are at stake. So when you hear those comparisons being made, nobody's saying, oh, we're all going to be wearing funny mustaches and goose stepping around. Nope. And I think those of us who've been sounding the warning for a long time understand that this is not about, hey, we're all about to turn into, you know, the Fourth Reich. It's We're headed the same direction that others before us have gone before they went into full-blown madness. That's why we sound the warning. Back to Barry Brownstein's article. He says, in the history of humanity, when there are parallels in the present to past terrible times, we honor the memory of those who suffered horrifically by learning what brought forth their suffering. When we say never again, those words have meaning. Not when we mindlessly call somebody Nazi or communist, but when we understand what generated the suffering of millions. He writes, in 2020, Auschwitz survivor Marion Tursky reminded his audience that the death camps were a culmination of a process that began with propaganda. Quote, but be careful, be careful. We are already beginning to become accustomed to thinking that you can exclude someone, stigmatize someone, alienate someone, and slowly, step by step, day by day, that's how people gradually become familiar with these things. Both the victims and the perpetrators and the witnesses, those we call bystanders, begin to become accustomed to the thoughts and ideas that this minority that produced Einstein, Nellie Sachs, Heinrich Heine, and Mendelssohn is different. They could be expelled from society. They are foreign people, that they're people who spread germs, diseases, and epidemics. That is terrible and dangerous, but that is the, this is the beginning of what can rapidly develop. End quote. Now, Brownstein says, for his part, Tursky promotes an 11th commandment. Thou shalt not be indifferent. Today we have the power to oppose. Tomorrow we may not. Now, there are universal lessons to learn from relying on the right people to lead society. Individuals are fallible. Strict limits on power are always needed. And there are universal lessons when bureaucrats exercise power backed by the coercive force of government. They may be unprepared, unresponsive, or incompetent at best, and immoral and evil at worst. Politicians and bureaucrats are especially dangerous when they believe they are anointed to coerce others. Followers who have not yet learned that power is dangerous may be surprised by the actions their leaders take. Next time they believe they'll find better people to champion. Well, their next anointed champion is likely to fall short. The anointed are not incentivized to respect the autonomy of ordinary people. In his book, The Vision of the Anointed, Thomas Sowell warns what is seldom part of the vision of the anointed is a concept of ordinary people as autonomous decision makers, free to reject any vision and to seek their own well-being through whatever social processes they choose. The anointed want unbridled power. They are certain they have the knowledge they need. Sowell explains, the hallmark of the vision of the anointed is that what the anointed consider lacking for the kind of social progress they envision is will and power, not knowledge. And then he adds, the real comparison, however, is not between the knowledge possessed by the average member of the educated elite versus the average member of the general public, but rather the total direct knowledge brought to bear through social processes the competition of the marketplace, social sorting, etc., involving millions of people versus the second-hand knowledge of generalities possessed by a smaller elite group. 
Now, Brownstein says the anointed are sure that if problems remain, it's only because others instruct or obstruct them, rather. So, Soul explores the mindset of the anointed. Quote, the refrain of the anointed is, we already know the answers. There's no need for more studies. Oh, does that sound familiar? And the kinds of questions raised by those with other views are just stalling and obstructing progress. Solutions are out there waiting to be found, like eggs in an Easter egg hunt. Intractable problems with painful trade-offs are simply not part of the vision of the anointed. Problems exist only because other people are not as wise or as caring or as bold or as imaginative and imaginative as the anointed. End quote. Now Barry Brownstein says those who exercise power over us want to keep us in the dark, not learning history's lessons. He says, during COVID, big tech ramped up censorship to levels we would expect to see in totalitarian societies. Lessons from history, consideration of alternative paradigms, and the works of great champions of liberty like Sowell, Hayek, and Mises provide proverbial light. But closed, the blackout cellular blinds in my bedroom screen out the light. Opened, the light shines away the darkness. He says, remove any barrier keeping us in mental darkness and the light will shine to take us in the right direction. What a great metaphor. Now, from here, he goes into the story of Ulrich Alexander Boschwitz. And I'm going to hit the pause button on this for a moment because we're coming up fast on our break. But what do you think? Does this not ring true? I mean, is, are there not people who are trying to keep us in darkness at this moment? It's funny, I tried to share uh, an article last week on Facebook, and I can't even remember what it was. I just remember that the first two times I tried to share that article, oh, it was about the, it was about the movie um, Songbird. The first two times I tried to share that link, Facebook, it didn't outright send me a warning, hey, you're going against our community standards. It did something, standards, it did something much more subtle. It just sat there. Kind of going in reset mode. It was like the, the spinning colored disc on an Apple product. Uh, what do you want me to do? It took like three tries before I could get the, the article to share. And even then, it was shadow banned. I don't know. The algorithm sniffed it out pretty quickly. It was very, very tough. I think I've had maybe three or four people say that they've seen it. Yeah. I mean, hey, I put it out there, but... Facebook had their net ready and waiting. We'll come back to Barry Brownstein's article in just a few moments. It is linked in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm going to continue on with uh, Barry Brownstein's article here about uh, from darkness to light. And that is our job. You're going to notice a definite theme in today's show that we tend to get what we focus on. And if we're more focused on darkness, guess what we're going to be spreading? Darkness. Now, I'm looking at myself when I say this. I'm like, okay, I walk that fine line every single day, you know, between I want to keep you informed Versus I want to load you down with all the bad news of what's going on. So this is this is hopefully something that's uplifting. We'll get more into uh, Barry's article again here in just a moment. I want to steer you to lifesavingfood.com. There is a special going on this week that you need to know about. You save 
28% on the Ultimate Power Solar and Cooking Emergency Food Kit. Everything you need to be truly prepared, including meals, a powerful water filter, a solar device charger, a stove, fire starter, and a whole bunch more. Click on the link I provide in my show notes for lifesavingfood.com. Check out this ultimate solar power and cooking emergency food kit at 600 bucks, but you're saving $232 right off the top, plus free shipping, no sales tax. Wow, this, this is a killer deal. Might want to take a look at it. So back to Barry Brownstein's article. Learning from the passenger. He says, Ulrich Alexander Boschwitz, born in Germany to a Jewish father and Protestant mother, escaped to Sweden in 1935. When he moved to England, Boschwitz was classified as an enemy alien and interned in Australia. In 1942, Boschwitz was allowed to return to England, but died at sea following a torpedo attack by a German submarine. Recently rediscovered is Boschwitz's 1938 literary masterpiece, The Passenger. In it, Boschwitz tells the story of Otto Silberman, set in 1938 in Germany, just after Kristallnacht. Silberman, a fictitious Jewish business owner, is on the run from Nazi roundups, and to elude capture, he takes a continuous series of train rides from German city to German city. One mistake and he is doomed. Yet Boschwitz's protagonist can't quite believe what has happened. Who could have imagined anything like it? In the middle of Europe, in the 20th century. People don't just go hauling off respectable citizens from their homes. They can't do that. Now, the mindset that Boschwitz reveals is instructive. If the hunted could not quite believe what was happening, we can understand why ordinary Germans saw nothing to be concerned about. And today, fully vaccinated Americans may not be concerned about upheaval in the daily lives of the unvaccinated. German propaganda turned reality on its head. A newspaper headline at a train station screamed at Silberman, Jews declare war on the German people. Did did ordinary Germans question such unbelievable news? Probably not. Today, do the vaccinated question the propaganda that the unvaccinated are killing the vaccinated? Silberman tries to escape to Belgium and is quickly caught and sent back. He tries to rally himself thinking, well, maybe things aren't so bad. His naive faith in government is revealed when he reasons, even if the Nazi government is full of anti-Semites, it's still the government, and this, meaning the beatings and roundups of Jews, is something they simply can't allow. He hopes tomorrow the governed might well declare, it happened without their knowledge. Now more naivety is uh, revealed. Sneaking back to his apartment to find his Aryan wife, Silberman finds everything smashed. He picks up sufficient evidence of the deeds of the Nazi thugs, imagining he will get justice. He meets former business partners who are incapable of empathy and only want to take advantage of him. Reality sinks in as Silberman realizes, I should finally acknowledge the reality of the situation. Things are going to get worse, much, much worse. Poignantly, Silberman asks himself as if, if his optimism was nothing but cowardice. From his time on the front lines of World War I, Silberman has fond memories. Things were unpleasant, but we were soldiers, soldiers among soldiers, and now we are filthy Jews, and the others are Aryans. And Barry Brownstein points out today, professionals fired over their personal medical decisions would echo Silberman's plaintive cry. My character and my qualities are entirely unimportant. The headline that I am Jewish or that I am not vaccinated decides. The content doesn't matter. 
And Barry Brownstein asks, is in our optimism, we believe that somehow things will get magically better. Is our optimism a cover for cowardice? Now, that's a tough question to be asking yourself. But that's what a person with character would do is ask themselves that question. There was little Silberman could have done to escape his fate. Our job in opposing tyranny is exponentially easier, as Charlie Eisenstein points out, Charles Eisenstein points out. Quote, those pushing a techno-medical totalitarian program are nowhere near to consolidating power to the extent of the Soviet communists, the slave-owning class, the Nazi party, or medieval Catholic Church. Similar forces are at work, dehumanization, scapegoating, ideologies of control, but there's still time to turn the tide. Vocal dissent does not mean certain death. End quote. Now, Barry Brownstein says uh, today vocal dissent doesn't mean death, but many people self-censor as if it does. Eisenstein writes, another thing I've been hearing a lot of recently is that COVID tyranny is bound to end soon because people just aren't going to stand for it much longer. It would be more accurate to say COVID tyranny will continue until people no longer stand for it. That brings up the question, am I standing for it? Or am I waiting for other people to end it for me so that I don't have to? In other words, am I waiting for the rescuer so that I needn't take the risk of standing up to the bully? End quote. Holocaust survivor Vera Sharov warns against blindly supporting the war on COVID. Part of what's wrong, she says, is the idea of just following authority without considering. What if they're wrong? What if it's not in my best interest? Why? Well, she adds it's a very, very dangerous thing to follow. It's a dangerous thing to do, meaning to follow. That's what happened in Germany, essentially. All Germans were not evil, but most of them, the vast majority, simply went along. Now, Brownstein writes, Silberman's features are not stereotypical, making it easier for him to blend in while traveling. He encounters other Jews while riding the trains. One with a more stereotypical Jewish appearance wants to join forces with Silberman, but he's reluctant. Silberman reasons, perhaps even correctly, that his risk of being caught will go up. As Silberman encounters other Jews, he begins to notice his own us-versus-them thoughts. I'm no different than anyone else, but maybe you are truly different, and I don't belong in your group. I'm not one of you. Indeed, if it weren't for you, they wouldn't be persecuting me. By his willingness to see his own ugly thoughts, Silberman offers us an important lesson. As he becomes aware of and does not justify his thoughts, he sheds light on his thinking and dispels his darkness. He thinks of his Aryan brother-in-law, his business partners, and others who refuse to help or seek to take advantage of his plight. And then, remembering his own unwillingness to help others, Silberman thinks, what actually separates me from you, meaning those who won't help, we're so alike it's downright frightening. Now, Silberman's realization, we're so alike, is hopeful. And Barry Brownstein says, the darkness I see in you is also in me, but so is the capacity to be courageous and compassionate. In his book, Out of Darkness into the Light, the late psychiatrist Gerald Jampolsky wrote, it takes work to remember that we have choices. Today, so many furiously proclaim they have no choice but to follow the anointed. Now, for many decades in California, Jampolsky ran the Center for Attitudinal Heating, Healing. rather. Actor Robert Young, famous for playing the dad in the iconic TV series Father Knows Best, was a supporter of Jampolsky's Center. Jampolsky relates the story of Young's teenage daughter asking, Dad, how come each week on television you solve the most difficult family problems imaginable, yet at home you seem so stupid? Young laughed and replied, Well, honey, at the studio I just have a good screenwriter. 
Barry Brownstein concludes by saying as long as people believe the current anointed, such as Dr. Fauci, are trusted societal screenwriters of the lessons of history, economics, and the laws of power will not be learned. We will continue to deny our responsibility to oppose anyone claiming to be anointed. Jampolsky writes, everything in life depends on the thoughts we choose to hold in our minds and our willingness to change our belief systems. We alone retain the power to let in the light. So how do you do that? We're going to talk about that a little bit later on in the show. I'll tell you this, a lot of it comes down to what you focus on. So if you want to focus on the light, you're going to be a much better reflector of that light. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm so thankful that you are part of my growing audience, and I want you to know if you find value in what I do here each day, I have great sponsors who make this possible. They include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George, Utah. Bottom line is this. If you are anywhere within the state of Utah and find yourself looking for a mortgage loan, a VA loan, traditional loan, reverse mortgage, etc., maybe you just want to refinance your existing mortgage, I want to point you toward the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Why? Well, because Heather literally has decades of experience doing this. She knows what the lenders need. She knows what the borrowers need. Most importantly, she has the clout and the know-how to get the job done and done quickly. You don't have time to spare. It's a super competitive real estate market. If you need to get that loan taken care of as quickly as possible, this is your best bet. You can call 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I came across a great article from John Sanders. And it, it, it just, to me, jumped out that we are becoming such a risk-averse society. And I'm not saying that we should all be base jumping from a bridge somewhere, you know, just to show that life doesn't scare me none. But it's strange how the harder a society tries to avoid all risk, the more controlling and dangerous that society actually becomes. So John Sanders uh, says, hey, I may be a daredevil compared to some, but he says zero risk is too risky for me. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. John Sanders says, with respect to risk tolerance, if you'd asked me before March 2020, I probably would have described myself as risk averse. For example, I'm what you might call respectful of heights. That's my preferred euphemism for terrified. I wasn't too fond of them to begin with, but falling off a ladder while cleaning off leaves was enough. I set out to do a mundane chore and returned limping like Quasimodo and moaning like Marley's ghost. Now, he says, I'm also cautious with money, and I don't like to make big decisions on a lark. He says, I always thought that I tended toward the cautious side of things, favoring more discretion than valor on the Falstaff scale. And I still do, but he says, the more I think about it, it turns out I really like taking risks. I'm relatively reckless. In our zero-risk world, I'm a daredevil. For example, he says, I like red meat. I like my steaks, grilled medium rare. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warns me with red meat, I'm dancing on the cliff of renal failure, upping my odds by 30%. The World Health Organization tells me red meat is likely carcinogenic, and if I'm grilling it, it's going to cause cancer too. He says, my goodness, 
the National Institute of Health, the housing seat of the Saint of Saint Fauci, the science himself has warned that eating red meat increases mortality from cancer and heart disease. And that warning is based on a longitudinal study tracking 120,000 people from 1980 through 2012, a study in which 24,000 participants died. But he says, here's where my recklessness has its limits. I'm not going to participate in an NIH study. Those things will kill you. So while I'm gambling with a steak, what do I like to drink with it? Whiskey or wine? That's like Russian roulette in a glass, according to the CDC. All alcoholic drinks, including red and white wine, beer and liquor, are linked with cancer. Now, John Sanders says, I hadn't the heart to consult the NIH to see how many people they offed to tell me to stay away from a Cabernet. But he says, sometimes I even go out to eat. Now, in the eyes of our public health officials and their wide-eyed acolytes, I might as well be storming the beaches at Normandy. First, my wife and I leave the house. Then we get in our car, unmasked. Then we drive our car on the road with other drivers in various automobiles. Worse, we exceeded the three miles. We exceed three miles per hour by a lot. I'm hoping his speed limit isn't three miles an hour. Anyway, depending on the time of year, we either have our vents and windows open, despite being where carcinogenic vehicular exhaust is present, or we're taunting other carcinogens by turning on the AC or heat. Most likely we're listening to loud music, continuing a lifelong threat to my ears and my very soul. Most likely we'll do this all again on the drive home, but this time in the dark. Well, he really is a daredevil. At the restaurant, we're going to walk the tightrope of death from the door to the table, unmasked. The places we choose don't insult their neighbors and patrons by assuming they're crawling vectors of disease by virtue of showing up at the door wanting to do business with them. Because I cherish those places and their own risk-taking, I want their dining rooms to be packed. If it's a local bar, I hope there's live music and a big, boisterous crowd singing along. Sometimes, he says, we like to get out of our house and stay away for a while. We might drive again to the beach or to the mountains. At the beach, we like to soak up the sun, which can cause cancer. And we like to frolic in the surf, which can cause drowning, shark bites, and blue crab pinches. That's an anecdotal story there. In the restaurants, we like to eat local seafood and shellfish, adding dodging mercury poisoning to our death-defying feats. There are also people in there as well as people on the beach, people in the beach bars, and people in shops. People, as you know, are known carriers of COVID. In the mountains, we go hiking. Despite my fear of heights, I'm convinced that terra firma, even terra firma that's thousands of feet above the surrounding terrain, is worth the risk for a splendid view. We hike despite the above zero chance of encountering snakes, cougars, or even bears. Sometimes we even pass people on the trail. We do dangerous things daily, I realize, without a second's thought. Am I daring? Is it because I grew up riding a bike without a helmet, elbow pads, and knee pads? Is it from playing pickup basketball and football without the thought of adult supervision? John Sanders says, see, I think I'm most likely not that adventurous after all. I'm just hewing to an older standard of behavior. It was called normal. He says, I want to do things without deference to some paranoiac's definition of risk. I want you to be able to do them as well if you want. I want to jaywalk when I can make it and grab some greasy New York style pizza. I want to have the occasional cigar with my friends around the fire pit. And I want to cut the wood for it myself. I want to go for a run and take a hot shower. 
He says, I want to hear people. I want people to say things that I disagree with, even if that if let's try this again. I want people to say things I disagree with, if that means we can all speak freely. I want to debate about the existence of God, the meaning of life and the lessons of history. I want to enjoy watching sports for the love of the game and the roar of the crowd. I want to edge my way through a cramped, musty, used bookstore, and I hope it has a cat. I want to sit in church and hear about Jesus. I could give a rip what the CDC says about raw cookie dough or raw cookie batter. I want to lick the spoon. What I don't want is a life ruled by zero-risk strictures. It's impossible. The only way we've seen it tried is by central planners in police states, but they all really wind up accomplishing, all they really wind up accomplishing, rather, is outlawing people from telling the truth about zero chance of producing zero risk. As I said, I tend to be risk-averse, and the risk of zero-risk tyranny is far, far too great for me. Patrick Henry declared under a much greater risk environment, give me liberty or give me death. John Sanders says, my request is not so audacious. I seek the liberty we had, even if it comes with a slight uptick in risk. I love him for his humor, and I I love the point that he's making here. There's risk around us every day. There is no way you can get through a single day in life, I don't care how careful you are, without incurring some kind of risk. I mean, for crying out loud, one of, one of my dearest friends died about 12 years ago. Of uh, It started with an ulcer on his foot. He was diabetic. He was wearing too tight shoes and, and uh, spending his days on his feet, you know, working at uh, Home Depot. He, and he rubbed a blister on his foot that uh, became infected. It became an ulcer. It uh, did not heal, and eventually the infection spread into one of his foot bones. So he had to have his little toe amputated. And while he was laying there in the hospital, recovering from the amputation of his little toe, he threw a blood clot and died. Now, you know, this is not, please have sympathy for me. I'm, I'm, I'm sad. I miss Dave. Buddy, we're, we're going to meet again someday. But how could he have avoided all this? Well, geez, he'd have to go back to his childhood and, you know, first of all, convince his pancreas to keep on working, producing insulin. And, you know, he had childhood onset diabetes. But the bottom line is he still lived life. You never know what those risks are that you may encounter. None of us knows exactly what it may be that takes us out of this existence. So while that's not a call to go around being reckless, I mean, I I referenced base jumping. That's a very popular activity where I live. We have a wonderful quarter-mile-long bridge over about a 500-foot-deep canyon, and uh, people love to come and jump off that bridge. And you know what? Once in a great while, it's, it's rare, but it does happen. Somebody doesn't get their chute open in time, and they pancake into the Snake River. And, you know, it's, it's sad. It's tragic. Yes, it could be avoided. But what's crazy is there are, I'm guessing, hundreds, if not thousands of people who make that same leap safely. And, and there's many others, like me, who just appreciate watching people having the time of their life. I'm sure there's a lesson in there somewhere. I'm going to have to go sit and think about it. I'll leave you to do the same. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Yeah, I've got a little confession to make here. I, I say this as someone who used to love a good old-fashioned throwdown with strangers online. Don't do it. I say this as someone who used to love to vigorously argue with anyone who would call into my radio show. Don't do it. Even if it's not just a radio show. I'm, what I'm talking about here is that, uh, that concept of arguing with strangers. I know for some people it's great sport. And frankly, I'll admit, my favorite, my favorite years of Rush Limbaugh's radio career were those years where I would listen to him dismantling callers right and left who called in to take him to task for whatever it was they were, they were upset about. It's fun to listen to. But I crossed a threshold a few years back, and, and I just don't think I can go back. And that is, okay, it's fun to talk about things that get people engaged. It's fun to get to talk about things that get people riled up. But at some point, my conscience pinged me and went, hey, dummy, are you accomplishing anything besides just getting people riled up? Or are you actually, you know, giving them something that, uh, that is of value? And that was kind of an interesting moment to have to, to noodle that out and think, okay, what am I really doing? Well, I've got a great essay here from Joaquin Book about arguing with strangers. And it's a, it's a doozy. He calls it Uninteresting People, version two, a guide to arguing with strangers. And he starts with a quote from Matthew Crawford. Beliefs, including mine and yours, are fundamentally driven by prior biases. It takes deliberate effort to change that. Now, Joaquin Book says the first piece of advice for anyone considering arguing with a stranger is to resist. But he says, don't do it. It's not worth your time. In fact, he says, you're probably just wasting time, both yours and theirs. Nobody wants you to convince them of something. And the number of people who change their minds from mere conversation are astonishingly few. Some minor thing you don't care about, probably. The capital of Honduras, sure. Any piece of contested facts, infected arguments, or larger systemic ideological arguments? Yeah, hardly ever going to change someone's mind. Instead, as Michael Malice gracefully ends his great collection of anarchist essays in the Anarchist Handbook, says, You ought to just gladly salute people. I will smile and nod as my friends go to their places of worship, in other words, ballot boxes, wishing them well, while I simply pray to be left alone. Now, Joaquin Book says brutal confrontation is a conversational entertainment that few of us truly enjoy. And curious minds, those willing to examine hard-held beliefs and separate arguments against a position from arguments against a person, are few and far between. Nobody changes their mind from polite or not-so-polite shallow conversations. Your instinct and mine is to argue with them over what we think is right, more li- and it's more likely to just entrench their predisposition than it is to win them over. Just leave it alone. But then he follows up by saying, so then why bother? Well, King Book says, I was first exposed to that position years ago, but it didn't resonate with me at the time. It bugged me and set into motion the long subconscious mental process of reconciling contradictory beliefs. He says, I couldn't shake the feeling that only some people fall prey to biased assessments and motivated reasoning. Surely us learned others are above such nonsense. Our beliefs are held with reason and logic, right? But theirs? They're evil, or bought and paid for, probably for English gold. 
Besides, he says, we because we hold beliefs at any given t- some beliefs at any given time, those beliefs must have come from somewhere. What conversation or piece of writing convinced us of them? We learned some fact or relationship about the world. We put something together. We experienced something that makes us inclined to think some way. And above all, we have the genetic predisposition and personality trait that inches us toward one side or another. Thus saying, nobody can be convinced of anything is true, too strong of a, a conclusion. A more reasonable one, clearly on display in our Cuckoo 19 world, is that people aren't having the conversations you think you're having, especially in public, before an audience judging you on behavior and social desirability more so than the accuracy of your facts or consistency of your argument. To invoke Dave Smith's analogy, if you're playing basketball and get punched in the face, the response isn't to go, "Ah, I just need to dunk better or aim for a three-pointer. If you get punched in the face on the court, you're not playing basketball anymore. Brett Weinstein and Heather Haying and on dying, lying, and testifying said Dr. Fauci might actually be really, really good at his job. It's just not clear what that job is. Lots and lots and lots of even powerful people's silly arguments and stupid posturing, or stupid reasoning rather, is just posturing. Daily Experience writes Brian Kaplan in his superb Myth of the Rational Voter, the book that finally dissuaded Joaquin Book that state democracy was a viable vehicle for social organization, tells us that one of the goods people care about is their worldview. Few of us relish finding out that our religious or political convictions are in error. End quote. So democracy lets the individual enjoy the psychological benefits of irrational beliefs at no cost to himself. Now, Joaquin Book says Malice and Smith, not too public persona, with high regards for the political establishment or its processes, laid this out very quickly, or very clearly, rather. People start with their conclusion and reason their way to it. What informs Malice's political analysis is that the arguments people have don't matter. Hear, hear. So how to make progress? Well, he says you don't. Not really. At best, you'll find people who share the meta views of intellectual discourse, meaning honesty, thick skin, the capacity to admit flaws and correct course, who aren't afraid to uh, examine even the deepest held idea. If not, somebody aggressively arguing in your face triggers your F-off response. To hear what another is arguing, truly hearing it, you must like the person with whom you're conversing, or at least be positively predisposed to them. And that's generally not the case for some family acquaintance you met five minutes ago or some Twitter profile who you followed or who followed you five seconds ago. Once there, he says, it still takes a lot of effort on your own part and others and exposure to contradictory evidence. Jonathan hates uh, must I believe it versus can I believe it, an area big enough to fit an oversized Boeing of ideological positions. But Joaquin Book says, above all, you need time. If, and that's a big if, another can be persuaded to change one's mind on some deeply or shallowly held position, that's a gradual and painful process. Now then he poses the question, and this is a fair question. Aren't I a hypocrite then? He says, I mean, I do write for a living. I do concern myself with taking others' attention and directing it toward what I find interesting and valuable. Is my aim not to convince my readers of something big or small? True, he says it is. 
John Tamney, sharing my somewhat uncomfortable seat, stumbled on the same insight in a recent book review. How do you critique an expert investor who's written a book on investing? More challenging is how to do this as a commentator when the author makes plain in the opening chapter chapter that talk is cheap. And ideas and commentary are just that. Okay? But your reviewer writes commentary for a living and communicates those ideas for a living. What to do? Joaquin Book asks, are Tammany and I special? We talk and talk is cheap and reality decides. What gives? Are our readers a higher degree of smarts than most others? Most people are uninteresting. Maybe we, but he says maybe, but we and you, dear reader, are in the select crowd of interesting, right? Eh, perhaps. But again and again, he says, I return to another vital difference. You can click away any time your attention strays even an iota. When my words no longer pass the opportunity cost test of your time, you can control W them. No hard feelings. In fact, he says, I probably wouldn't even know. We don't have that same luxury in spoken conversation, at least not among friends or family where certain behaviors are required and expected of you. You can't just mute that obnoxious uncle. And it takes a rare kind of open and direct friendship to withstand hyper-honest comments like, Mate, this is uninteresting and I'd rather not hear it. Move on. But we should probably say it more often. And take that ruthless comment to heart. Nobody said communication was easy. So what's the takeaway? He says you don't argue with strangers. And you most certainly don't argue with friends. Unless that friendship is strong enough to withstand the pressure the pair of you are intellectually curious and open-minded enough to consider honestly the exchange you might bring forth. If not, just check out. Go see a mountain or a sunset. Watch a movie or play a game. Don't let politics or morals or ideology intrude into, spoil, those sacred moments. Don't argue with strangers, he says. They don't want to hear it. You don't want to do it. It's not going to shift anyone's position. Now he asks, is that too nihilistic and rude? Sure, whatever. Do I look like I care? Ha! What a fun note to end on. Well, I I second what he's saying here. It may be fun for onlookers, but it really accomplishes nothing to sit there and throw down, especially arguing with strangers online. And social media has trained us that this is a great way to pass the time. Speak the truth with love. Give the person you're speaking with time to process it and let them come to the truth on their own terms. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, my fellow wrong thinker. Pull up a chair. Make yourself comfortable. we got some great stuff to share in this hour of the show. And our program is made possible by great sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, GovernYourIncome.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAMO.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, as well as LifesavingFood.com. I have never heard the phrase before of a Jezebel spirit. Now, I've heard of the story of Jezebel from the Old Testament. I've heard people, you know, say it sometimes, you know, and calling someone out, you're a Jezebel. 
but I would never have understood what that meant had I not read Alan Stevo's latest comment, or his latest column, rather, about how Jezebel spirits thrive when there is no one willing to stand. And since one of the focuses of this show is to try to persuade you, my fellow wrong thinker, to have the courage to stand, not necessarily to stand down the corner, you know, with a megaphone, you know, standing boldly so that everyone can throw garbage at you as they drive by, but just knowing that you have the courage and the clarity of your convictions that when it's, it's your principles at stake, you can stand courageously, even if you have to stand alone. Even if your voice shakes, you can do it. So if you've ever wondered why your courage is needed now more than ever, this is a terrific read. Alan Stevo says, on a recent flight from Tampa to Atlanta, a woman got in the face of another passenger and yelled at him for not having a mask on. Now, he said he was eating and would not be putting it on. This mask Nazi ultimately struck him in the face and spit on him. Now, he remained seated and stood his ground verbally, though he unfortunately rolled in the proverbial mud a little, especially when he descended into using foul language with her. This woman, later identified as Patricia Cornwall, was taken with a spirit of control, a Jezebel spirit, as some people describe it. And this is true of many people who support the health mandates. In the Bible, Jezebel was the wicked wife of King Ahab. She was allowed to thrive in her wickedness. Now, Alan Stevo says, I have often asked readers to ignore the more sheep-like people, such as your triple-masked neighbor. They spook easily have little along the way of a moral guidestone, have existed in all times and are not the variable. He says, I've previously asked readers to ignore the hyenas, such as the well-paid people growing even more well-paid due to the health mandates they helped implement. They are the true terrorists, the enemies foreign and domestic, with the domestic form of this terrorism being the more meaningful version. Though their evil can astound in its depravity, they too are a mere distraction. They've existed in all periods of time and are not the variable. He says it's the lion who deserves your attention. The trajectory of all history depends upon them, those lions who stay asleep or who awake. A woken lion will exude freedom by the very nature of his walk through the world. His actions may be unpredictable and hard to coordinate, but they will be actions that nonetheless exude freedom. This can frustrate a collectivist committed to organizing lions and unfamiliar with what it's like to interact with a truly free man. A lion cannot even prevent himself from exuding freedom if he tries. It is the natural consequence of his walk through life. And Alan Stevo says in a time like this, the objective of the free man then is to awaken as many lions as he can. Time spent focused on hyenas and sheep is often a distraction and a waste of time of one's personal resources, like time and energy, perhaps being the most valuable among those resources. So let's go back to the story of Jezebel and how it turned out for her. To return to the Bible and the antagonist of this essay, he says the story of Jezebel finally ends when Jehu comes to her home and calls on her servants, a group of eunuchs, to throw her down. Yes, Jehu literally wants them to defenestrate Jezebel from the palace. They proverbially proverbially regain their manhood by doing exactly that. Jezebel dies. Jehu tramples her with his horse. Jehu goes for lunch. 
and sometime later he sends people to clean up Jezebel's remains. By that time, Jezebel's remains had been devoured by dogs. Now, though the eunuchs threw her down to her death, a bold act, Alan Stevo says, I wonder if they could have had the decency to simply stand up to her civilly, look her in the face, and tell her no. That is the truly bold behavior. That's the behavior that would have prevented the wicked reign of Jezebel and may even have prevented her ultimate death. It is the behavior that was needed from her husband, an intact man who was less of a man in the story than even the eunuchs. Killing someone is the comparatively easy way out, perhaps even in a total act of cowardice when it's committed against a person you do not have the guts to stand up to, to stand up to face to face. Now, there could be consequences of doing that rather than killing Jezebel. It might even be foolhardy knowing the many consequences that had befallen others trying to do the same. The honest, bold, face-to-face conversation is often the brave thing to do and often absent in the life of so many who feel the boot of tyranny. Now here he asks the question, is Jezebel really to blame? Jezebel has an awful reputation that has lasted the test of time. While it's common to blame Jezebel in the story, there's an often overlooked detail. Jezebel would be unable to have such power and influence without her weak-willed husband, King Ahab. He is truly the problem in the story. Ahab is the one that enables the Jezebel spirit rather than commanding authority over it. He does not do the difficult work of leading his household to do righteously. Instead, he empowers the wickedness of his household. Now, what if Jezebel and Ahab had a child? See, later in the Bible, there's more trouble caused by the seed of Ahab. Having watched her mother and father interact with each other in such a way, their daughter, Athaliah, behaves similarly in the presence of a weak man who empowers her. The Jezebel spirit thrives in the presence of weak men. There's the takeaway line right there. This is understandable. Nature abhors a vacuum. Power rushes to fill the empty space. Like that era of societal decay in which Jezebel and Ahab lived, this contemporary era is also an era in which those two spirits thrive. The Jezebel spirit, which is a spirit of control, and the Ahab spirit, which is a spirit of weakness. Now, these are not necessarily gendered roles. A man can be taken with a Jezebel spirit. A woman can be taken with an Ahab spirit. Generally, they are gendered, though. So, the basic tenets of adulthood are where we are called to identify our boundaries, communicate our boundaries, and defend our boundaries. Similarly, we are called to identify our values, communicate our values, and defend our values. Now, if you can't do that, You are not a fully functioning adult. Such weakness is intolerable and leads to great evil in your life. The Ahab spirit is not he who does evil himself, though King Ahab did great evil. The Ahab spirit is that which is weak in the face of evil, thereby allowing, accommodating, and enabling evil. It's an evil of omission, not an evil of commission. It is a lack of responsibility for a situation in which a man is expected to take responsibility. Now, the career bureaucrats at all levels of government recognize the existence of such weaknesses and feed their power and control by feeding into the Ahab spirit of elected officials. This is true in the White House, where a senile, unelected grifter is the figurehead, incapable of managing his way through a press conference let alone manage the officials under his supervision. 
This is also true down to the school board, where bureaucrats distract officials with mounds of meaningless paperwork while ushering through meaningful votes quietly, usually without being noticed by the elected official and certainly always without opposition. It's exactly how some bureaucrats run the show unchecked for decades. While the elected official is made into a mere rubber stamp and occasionally a scapegoat, with the public never able to figure out why nothing changes for the better, no matter who they elect. And a lot of leaders are just like Ahab, which means the Jezebel spirit thrives. So, Alan Stevo says, while the Ahab spirit endemic in this era of weak men, or with that endemic in this era of weak men, he says it's virtually impossible to find a man in a position of authority not taken with this complacent weakness. Such a man is very unlikely to accept responsibility, is perpetually obsessed not only with longevity, but with longevity of career, and is often spoken of as a true leader. He's the opposite of a leader. He is little more than frivolity and vanity incarnate. It's very difficult to find any male in a position of governmental authority who is not taken with an Ahab spirit. Great, Great effort is taken to make it seem otherwise. Boy, does that not sound like some of the leaders that he's describing? Some of our leaders, rather? He says the Jezebel spirit can only thrive in the presence of an Ahab spirit. Anyone with a sense of authority in his life and who demands responsibility for what's taking place around himself does not let a Jezebel spirit thrive. We're going to come back to this in a few moments. I hope it doesn't seem too much like a Sunday school lesson, but this seems very relevant. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here for SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. This is a wonderful family-owned business located in St. George, Utah. And, uh, you know, even if you're a manly man who really isn't into sewing or embroidery or long-arm quilting, I bet you know somebody who does thrive on creating. And this it's a very, very viable pastime and hobby as well as a pretty good way to be more self-reliant. I mean, come on, if you can, if you can fix or, for that matter, fabricate your own clothing, that's a pretty cool skill to have, something that may actually come in handier in the days ahead. Bottom line, though, is this. You're looking for a one-stop shop that will get you not only the machines that you need, and I'm talking Brother, Baby Lock, and Genome, but also free classes to go along with those machines, meaning when you buy a long-arm quilting machine, for instance, from Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, you have the ability to go take classes, and those classes never expire. All of their machine classes can be taken again if you forget or if you just want a refresher course. Now, they're offering some specials through the month of January. That's going quickly, so you probably should jump on this sooner than later. And if you live in Washington County, they'll even offer free delivery on all products purchased off their website. If you live in Mesquite or Cedar, they say, give us a call. We'll work something out. Anyway, I appreciate having them as sponsors. There are links in my show notes under my sponsors that will get you connected with Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. So back to this article by Alan Stevo. Jezebel spirits thrive when there is no one willing to stand. And if you understand the Jezebel spirit as that spirit of control, that need to control others, and it thrives 
in the presence of the Ahab spirit, her husband, the wicked king Ahab, who was too weak to stand up to her controlling nature. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Let's translate that that Old Testament story into more uh, current parlance. Alan Stevo says the contemporary term, or at least one contemporary term for the Jezebel spirit, is Karen. The man on the aforementioned flight, after being smacked in the face, commented, Sit down, Karen. You're going to jail. Now, a Karen is a person of any age, race, or gender who seeks to control another person, usually by attempting to report that person to authority. Though imperfect, the term Karen is a truly telling and informative term from our era, and it must not be easily dismissed for any of its foibles. Alan Stevo says it's one of the rare instances of our popular culture providing ancient and useful wisdom organically, even in our morally corrupt and intellectually impoverished setting. Karen is in several meaningful ways the contemporary equivalent of Jezebel. In a spirit of distraction and confusion, some have taken to make Karen mean any middle-aged white woman that you don't like. That's not the case. There is no race, gender, or age requirement associated with this term. That Karen spirit can appear in anyone just as a Jezebel spirit can exist in anyone. Now, Ahabs have always hated taking responsibility or why it's not your oppressor's fault that you are so oppressible. Alan Stevo says, you know, it's been said, it's not your oppressor's fault that you're so oppressible. <clears throat> he says, I tend to agree with that sentiment, at least in my own life. He says, I find it a very helpful approach to take. It's up to you to decide if it's fitting for your own life as well. For instance, he says, I seldom let anyone complain to me for more than a few seconds about how oppressed he is in life without pointing out the Ahab spirit that he welcomes into his life, which makes being oppressed by another almost a guarantee. Yes, yes, he says, I tend to find that it is not your oppressor's fault that you are so oppressible. He says, I, if I mention how many divorced dads I've had to say this to, I may get a flurry of angry emails because Ahab never seems to want to take responsibility. This era needs a lot less Ahab and a lot more take charge Jehu, figuratively speaking, rather, or else this era, marked by a preponderance of Jezebel and Ahab spirits, will be supremely weak, unhinged, and a wicked era that we pass on to the next generation. And here he pivots into face masks, saying one reason that face masks are so important is that they push the boundaries on acceptable behavior and permissible oppression. They train those who wear them for further oppression. And they also signal to the oppressors that those who wear them are ready for further oppression. I mean, that's, that's direct, but I think he's right. He says, a host of other sociological activities take place that I will not now get into, but which I write about at length in my books, Face Masks Hurt Kids and Face Masks in One Lesson. This is to say that a face mask is much more than a face mask. It's much more than an attempt to stop the spread of a disease. The disease prevention claim, by the way, has been unequivocally disproven at this point. Face masks, in fact, hurt you. Face masks are harmful both for those who wear them and those who allow them worn around themselves. Now, Alan Stevo says, my experience has been that those who refuse to say no to the face masks every single time are those who will take the COVID shot. They've just not heard the right reason yet. Every time they put the face mask on, it's training and preparation for them to take the shot. In fact, taking the shot is far easier. 
It literally takes only 10 seconds of weakness, and in some cases, the shot produces a lifetime of regret. You are paving the way for that and worse every time you put on a face mask. Saying no to the face mask every time is of fundamental importance and reverberates into other areas of life. The Jezebel spirit wants you to mask up, wants you to take the shot, wants you to comply to much worse. The Jezebel spirit has no boundaries on anything. As she says, just this one last thing and never stops coming up with that one last thing because she never meets resistance. Alan Stevo finishes up by, by noting that Jezebel spirits thrive in our era. That is precisely because Ahab spirits thrive in our era. Such a moral a vacuum, rather, of moral authority is all a Jezebel spirit needs to thrive. It's the job of the upright, mighty man of valor, the job of the upright, virtuous woman to say no to these spirits and to take authority over them. Now, that may not change the world overnight, but one step at a time, taking authority over that spirit of control in your own life will change the world as you know it. The simplest and most meaningful step in making that happen is by saying no to the face mask. Not just once, not just sometimes, but each and every time. And he asks, who will you be? An Ahab, a Jezebel, or a Jehu? No need to answer that question verbally, says everyone knows the answer by seeing the face mask choices you make. The choice is all yours. I really like his take on this, and I think this is this is one of those great applications of biblical knowledge. I think there's a terrific lesson to be learned here. I want to go back for a moment, though, to something he started with, and that is the idea that there are sheep, there are hyenas, and there are lions. Now, maybe I'm just deluding myself, but in my heart, I believe that this program is one of those... Uh, efforts of many, you know, like many people are doing right now, to awaken the lions among us. In fact, I'm going to just come right out and say what I'm thinking. You are a lion, whether you see yourself as one or not. It's who you are. You, would, you couldn't stand to listen to this program. It would, it would repel you if you were a hyena. It would frighten you if you were a sheep. Oh, don't turn that off. I don't want to hear this. But something that Alan Stevo points out here is if you are a lion, you will exude freedom by the very nature of your walk through the world. And that doesn't mean that you're going out there and you're imposing this on everybody. It just simply means people will know at a glance when they look at you. They will understand within seconds of opening their mouth to speak with you that you are a lion. And lions, in my opinion, are super spreaders of the, the kind of uh, pandemic that we really need most at this time. And that is a pandemic of courage. So, walk like a lion through your life and courageously spread that courage everywhere you go. You won't even know the people that you're infecting with it. But they'll recognize it and they'll be better for having contracted that courage from you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. 
Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. If you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, it's a very simple thing. Just uh, click on the subscribe button, which you will find at thebrianheidshow.com. Now, it's going to ask you for your email. And I want to give you my assurance, I do not share your email. I do not sell your email to anybody else. Yes, I am compiling a list of subscribers, but it is for the purpose of when I hit publish on my show notes, which I do every single day that I do this program, it will send a copy of those show notes to you. And I'm not saying that I'm not going to say that my show notes are what's going to make all of your dreams come true. But just know that I spend the better part of my waking hours looking for good, credible, principled information, things that will inspire you to live up to the difference that you were born to make in this world. So if you're looking for somewhere to go to be angry or to be told who or what you should fear or hate, I'm not your guy. Sorry. That's okay. You know, I mean, if, if, we're, if, we're, if we're not cut out, you know, for the same message here, that's, that's fine. I'm not going to look down on you. You're free to go and find, you know, what you're looking for. But for those who are serious about making a difference, this is, this is what I try to help them do in my own small way. And I count it as a huge privilege to be able to do this. So thanks to those of you who subscribe. Again, go to thebrianheidshow.com. I'll be happy to put you on the list and send a copy of those notes to you each day. So we talked about face masks with the Alan Stevo commentary. And I, I look back over the last couple of years now, and I just think it's absolutely fascinating how mask mandates have become one of the primary battlegrounds between the folks who want to control to control others and the rest of us. And I think one of the places we've seen this play out the most has been in, in um, educational settings, whether it's higher education or whether it's, you know, school boards. I know there's been a big battle going back and forth in, uh, for instance, Salt Lake City, Utah, where the mayor is like, well, I have to protect people, so I'm putting a mask mandate in place. It's, these are just people trying to flex and, and use their power to show I still have control. And people of a controlling nature applaud that. Yes, yes, you're protecting us. You're doing the right thing by making everyone wear a mask possible. And when the legislature, the Utah legislature says, hey, we're uh, voting down these mask mandates or we're, we're voting to put an end to these mask mandates. That doesn't mean that they're voting. Nobody may wear a mask anymore. It just simply means that uh, you're free to choose if you want to, but you can't compel others to do it. And this is really concerning for those with a controlling nature. Oh, they can't do that. Why? How? They're leaving us all vulnerable. They're so stupid and so forth. I like how Jeff Deist from the Mises Institute says, look, it's time to unmask America and it's time to get back to normal life with visible human faces. He says enough is enough. It's time to stop wearing masks or at the very least to eliminate mask mandates in all settings. Now, this is especially urgent for kids in schools and universities who suffer the effects of masks for long hours each day, despite being at exceedingly low risk for death or serious illness from COVID. He says we have a responsibility once and for all to reject the ludicrous, ever-shifting narratives underpinning masks as effective impediments to the spread of COVID infections. And to remind us about that ever-shifting take on it, here's a quote from former U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams in February of 2020. Seriously, people, stop buying masks. They are not effective in preventing the general public from catching coronavirus. We haven't heard that in a couple of years, have we? 
The story changed from masks don't work to masks may work to masks work and you must wear one. Now the narrative switches yet again. Cloth masks don't work, so you should wear a surgical or well-fitted mask or even wear two. Note that even as COVID evolves into a less dangerous Omicron variant, we're supposed to increase the hysteria level by wearing masks intended for surgeons maintaining a sterile environment over open wounds. We're told this by the same political, medical, and media figures who have frequently been wrong, but never in doubt, about all things COVID over the past two long years. And they spoke with just as much bogus certainty then as they do now. Now, perversely, the Biden administration recently ordered 400 million surgical N95 masks for distribution across the country. Since N95 masks are considered disposable and meant to be worn at most for perhaps 40 hours, it's unclear what happens in a week or two when 330 million Americans run out of their free personal protective equipment. Now, the U.K. has sensibly ended its mask mandates both in public places, offices and other workplaces, bars, restaurants, sporting events, theater, and thankfully, schools. One young university student broke down in tears at the news, lamenting the inhumanity of her experience over the past two years. As British Health Secretary Savid Javid stated, we must learn to live with COVID in the same way that we learn to live, that we live with flu. Amen, says Jeff Deist. The arguments against masks are straightforward. Masks don't work, or at least cloth masks don't. Even the CDC now admits that what Dr. Anthony Fauci told the world in February 2020, cloth masks don't work, and there is no reason to wear one. Quote, the typical mask you you buy in the drugstore is not really effective in keeping out virus, which is small enough to pass through material. It might, however, provide some slight benefit in keeping out gross droplets if someone coughs or sneezes on you. I do not recommend that you wear a mask, particularly since you are going to a very low-risk location. Now, CNN's dubious medical expert, Dr. Lena Wen, previously an uber-masker, now tells us cloth masks are little more than facial decorations. And heroic skeptic Dr. Jay Bhattacharya cites both a Danish study and a Bangladeshi study which found cloth masks show little efficacy in preventing COVID. Are we seriously prepared to wear tight, uncomfortable surgical masks all day to avoid to evade Omicron? Masks are filthy. Human lungs and respiratory system are designed to inhale nitrogen and oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is literally a waste product removed from the blood via our lungs. Masks may not trap injurious levels of carbon dioxide against our nose and mouth, but they certainly get very filthy quickly and less changed constantly. And they also encourage mouth breathing, which can cause mask mouth symptoms, including acne, bad breath, tender gums, and lip irritation. Why would we ever interfere with natural breathing unless we felt sick displayed symptoms, and were worried about infecting others. And in that case, why not just stay home? Then there's the fact that masks are dehumanizing. Humans communicate verbally and non-verbally, and masks impede both forms. Masks muffle and distort our words. Our facial expressions are important cues to everyone around us. Those without cues, communication, and understanding, without cues, um, rather, communication and understanding suffer. 
Infants and toddlers may be most affected as a lack of facial engagement with parents and loved ones impedes the human connections and attachments formed during childhood. And perhaps most disturbing, however, are the symbolic effects when millions of Americans dutifully wear masks based on flimsy evidence provided by deeply unimpressive people. Facelessness, the lack of individual identity, personality, and looks is inherently dehumanizing and dystopian. Like prison or military uniforms, masks reduce our personal characteristics. Masks are muzzles, symbols of rote acquiescence to an ugly new normal that no one asked or voted for. And also, risk is inevitable. Risk is omnipresent and heavily subjective. In other words, COVID risks vary enormously with age and comorbidities. No one has a right to force interventions like masks onto others just as nobody has a right to a hypothetical germ-free landscape. Exhalation is not aggression, short of purposely attempting to sicken others. People wearing masks arguably shed slightly fewer COVID virus particles than those not, but this doesn't justify banning the latter from public life. As always, the overwhelming burden of justification for any intervention, including mask mandates, must rest on those proposing it, not those opposing it. In sum... Jeff Deist says Americans are not children. Trade-offs are part of every policy, whether government officials admit this or not. We know how to coexist with flu, just as we live with countless bacteria and viruses in our environment. We will similarly coexist with COVID. The goal is not to eliminate germs, and zero COVID is an absurdity. A healthy immune system built up through exercise, diet, and sunlight will always be the best frontline defense against communicable disease. But diet, exercise, and sunlight cannot be outsourced to health officials or mandated by politicians. So whatever slight benefits masks may provide are a matter for individuals to decide for themselves. People who feel sick with symptoms should stay home. We can all wash our hands frequently and thoroughly. Otherwise, it's time for Americans to assert themselves against the dubious claims and non-existent legality of government COVID measures. It's time to get back to normal life, and that starts with visible human faces. Amen, bro. I've got a link to this article in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. If it uh, strikes the right nerve with you, maybe consider sharing it with the people around you. Stick around. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Just want to give a quick shout out once again to lifesavingfood.com. There is a special going on this week that I think you will find worth your time. It is a very comprehensive ultimate solar power and cooking emergency food kit. And it includes a uh, water filter, very powerful water filter, lots of meals, a solar device charger, a stove, a fire starter, and a whole lot more. You can save $232 on this kit. That's a 28% savings. But I'm telling you, this is comprehensive. It's really good stuff. Whether you have to grab and go or stay put and weather out some kind of an emergency, I think this would be worth your time. Click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. That's lifesavingfood.com.
com. So there's a guy I follow by the name of Kurt Mercadante. In fact, I'm going to have him on the show here at some point in the near future, just because um, Kurt is, he is just one of those great influences out there and, and constantly reminding me through the day. I, I check my Twitter feed and I see things that he shares that are just so pertinent to people for whom freedom is a, a priority. One of the things that he talks about is how we tend to find more of the things upon which we focus, which means if you're exclusively focused on the negativity, the evil, the, the darkness that is surrounding us, you're going to invite more darkness and evil into your life. So if you don't want to focus on the negative, you know, or if you want, if you want to bring more negativity in your life, simple, focus on the negative. On the other hand, if you focus on things that are, are good, that are edifying, don't be surprised if you experience more of those kinds of things. Got a great article here from Andrew E. Herod talking about what is heroic virtue. And since, uh, you know, we all need, we all could use a little more courage, a little more goodness, and we could all stand to, to do more to promote that in the world around us. I thought this might be a fun exploration. Our culture has a very confused sense of heroism, often applauding the biggest, strongest, loudest, or wealthiest, writes Catholic commentator Bear Wozniak in his new book, Deep Adventure, The Way of Heroic Virtue. Now, in response to this distortion, he's drawn upon his own daring life of surfing Hawaii's waves and skydiving and running with the bulls in Pamplona, Spain, to examine insightfully the seven cardinal virtues. Wozniak counters the modern exaltation of braggadocio with courage's mundane basis, saying, True heroism, the kind that saves lives, preserves dignity, and protects the most vulnerable, is a determined, steadfast power, under control and directed toward the good with the clarity of purpose that comes with humility. Well, that's a good definition. Heroism is developed over time, one decision after another, moment by moment, formed by a deliberate, chosen, and habitual response to life. Now, wasn't it clarifies, heroes are not made by a spider's bite or on an alien planet. A hero is just a common person like you and me, choosing to do an uncommon thing. Virtue forms such a hero. As Wozniak notes, it's root in the Latin word ver, which means manly. True manliness is the pursuit of virtue. And justice stands at the beginning of Wozniak's analysis of the virtues. Quote, the virtue of justice in its classic, sen classic sense has two focuses, justice toward God and justice toward others. Think of the vertical beam of the cross as being justice toward God and the horizontal beam as justice toward others. Where the beams intersect is where we are called to live. End quote. Prudence, meanwhile, vitally concerns the surfer Wozniak. Many people think big wave riders have a death wish, but he says the opposite is true. Their go-for-it attitude is really a life wish. They want to live it to the fullest. Without prudence, we cannot fully experience God's plan for us. Without prudence, we are lost beneath the crushing waves, or worse, left sunning ourselves on the shores of mediocrity. Wozniak analyzes, abandoning yourself to God's will requires a prudent boldness. If you're just going to stay inside your comfort zone, you don't need prudence at all. You just need a foot rest. Ooh, smack. Now, Wozniak wisely distinguishes between earthly and heavenly desires in his discussion of temperance. Listen to this. 
The virtue of temperance is the self-mastery to enjoy pleasure without craving it. It is by moderating our appetites so that we control them instead of them controlling us. Now, by contrast, the only thing we can infinitely desire is an infinite being, namely God. If we desire God first and foremost, we will never fall into the trap of wanting more. Fortitude is the determined pursuit of the good, Woznik writes as he reaches the last of the natural virtues, and is the courage to do violence to our own weak will and to say no to the easy way that leads to defeat. Faith in God creates fortitude's foundation, for can there be any fear when we are with God? God is love, and perfect love casts out fear. And Woznik observes, I know that whether I live or die or push forward in prolonged suffering, God is with me. I mean, I got to pause for a moment and just say, these are some really great insights, and every one of them rings true to me. Now, from fortitude, Wozniak transitions to the supernatural or theological virtues beginning with faith. Faith is dynamic, like a pent-up energy wanting to explode. Faith without action is dead, he intriguingly states. For God is calling you to continually move out in faith. He's calling you to do the impossible every day. Every time I jump out of a plane, he says, I feel the same rush that I feel when I take a leap of faith in response to God. Jesus challenged Peter to exercise his faith and step out of the boat. True faith banishes worry and demands a confident Sabbath rest amidst God's security. Wozniak explains when we worry, we're actually trying to exert our will over his. Making anything other than God and his will our goal is ultimately idolatry. So he says, trust, rest, and try easy is his motto. Hope arises out of the deep desire for God. The yearning to connect with beauty, to intimately share our lives with someone, and to seek perfection comes from the very core of our being because it is actually the deep longing for intimacy with our Creator. Accordingly, to pursue that longing, to seek the knowledge of God, is to have the virtue of hope. Hope entails giving control to God. Woznik writes, once we've turned our back on the land and abandoned our will to God's We've given up all control. Even so, we wait in hope and prayer for the presence of the Lord. Now, Wozniak concludes with a similarly, similarly energetic feeling or understanding of love, rather. Love isn't about feelings, he says. Who has warm and fuzzy feelings for an enemy? No, love is about action. It is the committed desire for the good of another and enacting it. He writes, Jesus commands us to make the choice of love even for those who don't deserve it, in our opinions. As with Wozniak's pious mother in her long deathbed struggles, love often involves suffering. And he points to God's wrestling with Jacob in the Old Testament as an example. If we desire true intimacy with God, we can expect that there will be times when God will drive us into the dark night and will wrestle with us as we try to cling to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Pretty good stuff here. The Ocean Blue provides the perfect setting for Wozniak's journey ever deeper into the wild and untamable adventure of God's love. Wozniak's penetrating study of the seven cardinal virtues shows they are not the stuff of mere academic discussions, but principles for a life well-examined and well-lived. Wozniak will not leave readers in their armchairs the same. Again, this is a review of uh, Wozniak's book, Deep Adventure, The Way of Heroic Virtue, from Andrew E. Herod. And, and perhaps for some, it's, oh, it's a little too religious, Brian. Come on, man, you're off in the weeds. And look, 
Maybe that's not the message you needed to hear today, but I promise you, there's someone within the sound of my voice who is is trying to find the courage to stand up and live up to the virtues that they know are ennobling and empowering in their lives. So for them, you know, that's that's why I deliver this message. Look, I want to swing for the fences every single time I sit down and open this microphone. And there's some days where I get done and I'm like, wow, that's, you know, today's show went really well. Or I felt, I felt like I was in sync with whatever I was supposed to be doing. But there's times where it's like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and strangely enough, some of the shows that I, I pass off as, wow, that one kind of sucked. Or I, I really felt like I swung and missed on it. Those are sometimes the times when I hear back from people and say, I just so appreciate, you know, that you shared this or that you had this person on your show or you helped me understand something. So I never know. But something I do want you to understand about this program, um, as much as I would love to have the biggest, baddest audience in the entire world, it's not about having the biggest audience. You know, I understand that the message I have is not something that everybody wants or even what everybody needs. But for the people out there who are looking for more truth, more light, more understanding of what they can do to make the difference they need to make in the world around them. Well, if you're one of those people, you're the reason why I do this on a daily basis and count myself blessed for the opportunity to do so. Thank you for being part of this audience. This is The Brian Hyde Show.